Our scripture reading today will be out of the book of Micah, three different passages. We'll start with Micah 3, verse 9. This is out of the New Revised Standard Version. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and chiefs of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and pervert all equity, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And next is Micah 5, starting in 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are one of the little clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has brought forth. Then the rest of his kindred shall return to the people of Israel and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall live secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be the one of peace. And last is Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The word of the Lord. I'm going to try to move quickly through this this morning, and I've uh, shortened it for the sake of time. But today we begin a three-part series of messages looking at the main themes in the book of Micah as expressed in the eighth verse of the sixth chapter, to do justice, to love mercy or kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. And so each week we're going to take one of these uh, themes from Micah 6, 8 and, uh, and talk about them. And today we're looking at the requirement to do justice. I want to give you a brief little part of a background on uh, Micah as we study this. Micah lived in a small town called Morasheth, which is about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem. So here on this map, what you see is um, my squiggly lines and a map. Um, okay, never mind. Um, so you have the two... Those two little white circles are the, that's the divided kingdom. So Micah is an 8th century prophet. He prophesied at the same time that Isaiah prophesied in Jerusalem. So when Isaiah was a prophet of, of the temple, Micah was a prophet of the marketplace, of the streets, of the peasant class people. He came from a rural town outside of Jerusalem. And so the divided kingdom in the 8th century, you have the northern kingdom of Israel, which has Samaria as its capital. 
capital, and the southern kingdom of Judah, which has um, Jerusalem as its capital. Over kind of to the southwest where that other little white line is, that's where Egypt is, a massive empire in Egypt, where you see the yellow, that V over there, that is where the Assyrian Empire um, occupies all of that land, and then they even control some of that over to the west. Those, the, their borders are the Tigris and Euphrates River. Their capital is on over to the west, Nineveh, and that is where modern-day Mosul is, and so this is all Iraq. The reason I mention this to you is because the tiny little nation that is divided into two kingdoms, the nation of Israel in Israel and Judah, together are a tiny little nation, and they are strategically placed on a, on a trade route, a very attractive place, and they're surrounded by these massive empires who are very tempted by that nice little piece of land that they have, and, and so they're constantly in, uh, being threatened. The only reason they exist as a nation is because God is protecting them. So the kingdom is divided, but the people have been violating their covenant with God for many, many years by now. And they've developed classes and hierarchies and all kinds of injustices. And Micah is warning them. Micah is emerging out of Moresheth with a clear understanding of how their economic policies from up on high are affecting the peasant class. And he's warning these, these uh, the people of God that if they don't turn um, that they are going to be destroyed and in fact they are going to be obliterated and that does actually come to pass in 722 and then in 701 the Assyrians do come in they obliterate uh, the northern kingdom they move south then into the southern kingdom and they start taking people away into exile it's a terrible thing that happens and Micah is warning them that this is going to come to pass like all the prophets Micah spoke on God's behalf to accuse Israel. In chapter 3, he says, I am filled with strength, with the Spirit of God, and with justice and power to declare how Israel has rebelled. And so most of the book then looks at these accusations. And so you have accusation, warning, and then hope. He doesn't leave them to their own devices. He says God is going to come and rescue them if they turn. And so you see that throughout. That's the structure of, of the book. And, um, and so that's what we saw in our readings this morning. We saw one of those accusations of the corruption of the leaders of Israel. And then we saw the hope that from this town of Bethlehem, one of the little towns of Judah, will rise uh, the Messiah. By the way, that's where we get the title for the hymn that we sing, the Advent hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. Well, why is Bethlehem defined by its size? Because Micah does that. This little town of Judah and out of that will come the Messiah. Okay, so the book is written in Hebrew poetry, which means it's circular in its thinking rather than linear. And so that's why we have these various readings. When we get to chapter 6, I want to focus for a couple minutes on chapter 6, because this is where our key verse comes from for the series. The imagery in chapter 6 is a courtroom. Really the whole thing, the whole book is really like a courtroom hearing. But you get to chapter 6, and in chapter 6, Israel and Judah as a nation, they're there as the defendants. They're the, they're the defendants. The indictments have been listed. 
for them. And the prosecuting attorney is Micah. And he's been speaking in chapters 2 and 3, telling them um, uh, about their accusations. And now in chapter 6, it's their turn to make their defense, to speak on behalf of themselves. So Micah takes them into the courtroom uh, where they are told to plead their case. The mountains and the hills in Micah chapter 6 are the witnesses Isn't that wonderful? They've been around. They've seen it all. You can't fool the mountains and the hills. They tell the truth. They've seen everything. And and, and to their horror, the accuser is God. The accuser is God. Micah is, is the prosecuting attorney. And the real charge, that is the charge underneath the charge, not only have they been acting in ways that are oppressing people, but the charge underneath that charge is that they have failed to remember. They have failed to remember how God has been with them and has carried them throughout all the generations. And so in verses 3 to 5, God makes his case against them. He demands to know. What have I done to you? What right do you have to turn away from me? To take matters into your own hands? To determine justice as you think it should be determined in a way that puts you in the advantage? Did you forget that it was I who brought you out of slavery, gave you a place among the nations, and redeemed you with saving acts? Micah does not pull any punches. How dare you forget your life has been created and sustained by my love? So notice, like, like some of the other prophets, Micah isn't really concerned that God's people have broken God's rules. He's concerned that they've broken God's heart by failing to remember that all of life is a gracious gift. From the first days after the Exodus, really from the first days of creation, we humans have always had a hard time remembering that we live in God's hands When you were born, who gave you life? When you were in trouble, who rescued you from disease? When you, uh, your old addictions, who rescued you from bad relationships and lost dreams? When you were alone, who gave you every relationship that you now cherish? The sacred prosecutor is unrelenting. You dared to forget that it was all a gift from me. It's a very serious charge because every time we forget that we exist by the hand of God, we start to take matters into our own hands and we start to act like gods ourselves. And when we act like gods ourselves, we only end up hurting people. In the words of Karl Barth, all sin is rooted in ingratitude. All sin is rooted in in ingratitude, when our hearts are not filled with thanksgiving for what God has done, they are inevitably then filled with anxiety for what we have yet, what we have left undone. And so we become focused then on ourselves out of our own anxiety, and we fail to care for others with the steadfast love with which God has created us. So as Micah continues this courtroom uh, proceeding in verses 6 and 7, Israel makes their defense. And I got to tell you, it is a meager defense. Here's the defense. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Israel says, 
With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? In other words, how can I appease God? How can I get myself out of this trouble? How can I pay him off? Shall, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? I've got lots of things that we can burn. Maybe I can give him some burnt offerings and that will satisfy him. Or what about calves that are a year old? We have lots of calves in our big palaces up here. Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams? We've got lots of rams. With 10,000 rivers of oil shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. What is it that the Lord wants from me? You might have been in school as a child and you might have heard a teacher say to you that there is no such thing as a bad question. That's baloney. And this is my proof. These are bad questions. These are corrupt questions. Uh, these are questions asked by people who are trying to bribe their way out of trouble. There are such things as good questions and bad questions. Our questions reveal what's underneath us, the assumptions or the beliefs that we have. Some questions aren't just dumb questions. They're actually morally flawed questions. The questions that the defense asks here reveal only how much they have forgotten, how much they have failed to remember. The reason that God dragged them into the court in the first place is because they kept acting like gods themselves as though God were the one, God was the one looking for a handout. Do you need a ram? God doesn't need any rams. You think God needs anything from us? This isn't about what God needs. This is about our calling to live like ones who are in desperate need of God for every waking moment of our lives. By the time it gets to verse eight, Micah can't stand it anymore. And so he breaks into his own story to speak directly to them and to us. He says this, he's told you, you little human, what is good? In other words, don't keep asking God what you're supposed to do. And don't keep avoiding your calling under the guise of being confused. You know exactly what God wants. You know God's heart. He's already told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you. To do justice, to love mercy and kindness and to walk humbly with God. These three themes, doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly, uh, these are the main themes of the book of Micah, and we're looking at one each week. They're interrelated. You can't fully separate one from the other. Um, and kind of like the Trinity, they each have a function, and they serve together and flow in and out of each other. And today we're looking for a couple minutes at justice. The most important thing to remember about the biblical requirement to do justice is that we must never ever confuse it with believing in justice. God isn't impressed with our opinions. He's not impressed with the sincerity of our beliefs about social justice or with our ability to lobby for justice or vote for justice or demand justice. The prophets of the Old Testament, they just walked the streets and were horrified by what they saw. And they demanded that you people of God, you either start doing justice or stop calling yourselves the people of God. Similarly, the New Testament tells us nothing about Jesus' personal opinions on justice issues. 
He resisted the public debates of his day over what should be done with the Samaritan issue, the taxation issue, the adultery issue, or the Roman occupying army issue. Instead, he cared for the people who were beat up by these issues. And in doing so, he did justice. I believe that we all need to have thoughtful positions on the issues that challenge us and confront us today. But I also believe that that's a pretty easy thing to have an opinion. What's much harder is to follow Jesus as he introduces us to the people behind the issues. As we heard so well in our meeting last Sunday in between services and the stories that were shared and received. Every justice issue has names, faces, and stories that will break your heart. And if they don't break your heart, well, maybe that's an opportunity to do a little heart work. As the founder of the Sojourner community, Jim Wallace said, we really have no business talking about the poor unless we know people who experience poverty. Do you know people who are poor? How do we do justice for them if we don't even know them? But let's not stop there. How also do we do justice to the things in our everyday lives? How do we do justice to the demands of our home, our children, aging parents, friends who are in need, work, coaching soccer, PTA, a country's at war, and now we're going to throw the marginalized and the poor on top of all of that? All these demands pull you in different directions. And so if you do the right thing long enough and sincerely enough and hard enough, do you know what you will soon be saying? This is too much. This is too much. I can't solve all these problems. I can't, I can't do justice to all of these competing demands. To do right by one takes energy away from another. And then it gets worse. There's another requirement. Not only, Micah says, are you called to do justice because it's right, but also to love mercy, to love kindness. That's actually what distinguishes biblical justice from secular or any other forms of justice is that you can't have biblical justice without love. Those two things go together. And so the word for loving kindness is the word chesed. It refers to the steadfast, unshakable love that God has toward us. And Bree's going to preach about that next week. When we add sacred love to justice, it removes the element of giving people what they deserve, like in the punitive sense, which is what we typically think of when we refer to justice, putting people in jail. And instead, it substitutes giving people what they deserve with giving people what they need, which is the transforming love and grace of God in Jesus Christ. We do this because this is how God responds to us. When he placed his chesed alongside his justice, he chose not to give us what we deserve, but instead to give us what we need. And we have a word for that. It's called grace. God isn't asking you to make sure that every part of your life gets what it deserves. He's requiring that you give your heart to the needs of others. Isn't that just like the Bible? To take something difficult and make it impossible? Not just to do right, but to love. Nobody can love as faithfully and broadly as God does. Exactly. 
And that leads to the third requirement, which is that we are called to walk humbly. Brie will preach on that in two weeks. But these two requirements, as we pursue them of doing justice and loving mercy, as we try and fail and try and fail, we are thrust into the third uh, one, which is we are humbled and we are known of our need for God because we can't solve it on our own. When will you ever have cared for the sick or the poor or the brokenhearted or the LGBTQ community enough? When will you ever be a good enough parent? When will you ever get the church fully reformed and in order? Never, never. But we make that confession not to take us ourselves off the hook, actually to place ourselves squarely on it. We hold ourselves accountable for doing justice, not because we expect to succeed. Rather, it's because as we try, our hands are kept more tightly in God's hands, and we make room for God to be God. God never asked you or me to be the Savior. He asks us to remember that we have a Savior and to walk humbly with him as we attempt justice and love, which means that we are to remember that there is only one Savior, and to remember that what we have received, all of it has come from the bounty of God's grace. And to remember with a grateful heart that we have received in order that we give. So when we fail, we are different than those who pursue justice in a secular way because instead of burning out like one more uh, burned out do-gooder, we are refreshed once again each morning with the certain knowledge that Jesus Christ, the one who was born in Bethlehem, that Micah prophesied, is still raised from the dead and is still at work. The Spirit is still at work in the world and that means that anything can happen on any day even more justice and love will break into the world through our lives. Let's pray. Merciful God, when it comes to walking with you, our confidence is more in your hold of our hands than in our grasp of yours. We are humbled by our many failures and the losses and hurts of life. Most of all, we are humbled by your grace that always finds those who have lost their way and brings them home again. Amen.